Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. As you all know, we just celebrated a major American holiday this week, Thanksgiving, which is the day that Americans set aside to give thanks for family, food, and football. Well, that's not exactly what the first Americans had in mind. In fact, George Washington, as first president of the United States, proclaimed the first nationwide Thanksgiving celebration in America, marking November 26, 1789, as a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of Almighty God. Our gospel passage tells us a lot about what you or someone in your family could have experienced this week, except instead of a meal with family numbering in the teens, probably at most, Jesus and the disciples had a meal for 5,000 men, not including the women and children who were most assuredly with them. After all, where did he get the fish and the loaves but from a child? And just like this seems to always happen, somebody forgot something. Maybe the lima beans, or you didn't buy quite enough butter for all the baking. However, in our gospel story, the disciples are really out of sorts. They didn't just forget the secret ingredients in grandma's pie that everyone loves. They don't even have enough to feed themselves, much less the thousands who are coming to their feast. And the lectionary reading starts just a little late for you to get the full implication of how serious things are. The passage actually starts with the following. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And while the Passover is a feast day of sorts, it's an unusual one where the meal has prescribed foods that would generally not be everyone's favorite, matzo and bitter herbs, for example. So these folks have come a long way, perhaps like some of your relatives did, or perhaps you're the ones who traveled, and they're expecting a good meal before starting Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they show up, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing. And so the disciples are quite incredulous at Jesus' question about where to buy bread. I mean. They knew they couldn't just run out to the 7-Eleven and get a loaf of bread. And they need a lot more than that store would have. And anyway, they need so much bread, it cost them 200 denarii, almost a year's wages. And hey, Jesus, don't you remember we gave up our jobs to come and follow you? So as the story tells us, it was a setup. I mean, Jesus, as the passage tells us, did this to test Philip and the rest of the disciples. In fact, the word there for test is also the same word for tempt, the very word from which we get one of the names of Satan, the tempter. And in this case, it could mean sort of either or both, depending on the context. And one can ask, what exactly is even the tester? I mean, what did Jesus expect them to say? Yet we know that the disciples had seen the signs he was doing on the sick. The people who were following him had seen these signs. We know they had seen miracles. So indeed, I guess this was a sort of test and temptation, a, a test to see if they would have faith that Jesus really could do anything. 
After all, he'd done miracles that no one else had seen in the history of the world. Just a chapter before, Jesus had healed someone who was unable to walk for nearly 40 years. Why would the disciples doubt for a moment that he could feed this multitude? And yet it's obvious they don't get it. It just goes right over their heads or maybe their hearts. And we know that this is not the only time that Jesus will feed thousands. Later, he feeds 4,000. And the stories of both the feeding of the 5,000 we hear today and the 4,000 are told in the Gospel of Mark. So we know that this is not just a little confusion about whether it was four or 5,000. There were really two feedings of thousands of people and maybe more. These are the ones we have recorded. And yet let's remember the feeding of the 4,000 that happens after this in, in the Gospel of Mark. The feeding of the 4,000 occurs after John the Baptist's beheading. The disciples had just been sent out. And the disciples come back and they're disappointed in how things are going and they're probably upset about John and they're starting to complain about the situation. Our story today appears to be in a Jewish reading, a Jewish region, and was directed at Jews coming for the Passover, whereas the feeding of the 4,000 occurs in the Decapolis region, which is a Gentile region. Today we have 12 baskets in our story, likely representing the tribes of Israel, and again indicating that this is about Jesus's ministry to the Jews. While the feeding of the 4,000 they take up seven baskets, a number representing fullness and completion, the inclusion of the Gentiles in, in God's ministry, which even the Jews recognized was part of what the Messiah was coming to do. So those are the differences. But what's the same about the two stories? In both stories, the disciples are clueless. It's even more shocking, right, the second time around, where we might have been willing to cut the disciples some slack today, after you fed 5,000, why would you doubt that he could feed 4,000? In both stories, we see that when God does things, he does them big. The leftovers show us that not only God can feed 9,000 people, but that he's made enough to feed us for all time. He did this before we had really the chance to ask, and definitely before we began to realize or complain we were even hungry. <clears throat> it's easy as Orthodox Christians sometimes to get caught up in doing stuff. And for some to even fall into the trap of believing that doing the stuff is all there is. That's hardly the case because God is the beginning and end of all our doing. And God does not, and our doing doesn't make God do anything. Our doing does not make God do anything. God gives us our very existence and everything we have. And for that, we need to provide thanksgiving upon thanksgiving. So instead of our doing making God do something, it should be that God's doing brings us to do something for him. And doing is our thanksgiving for the gifts we've been given. Saying thank you to God is nice and important. But if that's all we're going to do, it's sort of like getting a present you don't want, faking your smile and eking out a thank you, putting it in the drawer to sit, or regifting. The saddest part is that the gifts that God gives us are beautiful. They aren't some you know, junk sweater that would have been better never being sewn, except for that ugly sweater party you needed to go to. Anyway, I hope that you were very thankful that God filled your place this week, even if you lacked a feast, because it isn't that God provides us with turkey and dressing. Instead, he provides us with the only food that matters, his own body and blood. He gave that up for us because he loves us more than we can ever know. 
He didn't just feed thousands while he was here. He's still feeding us today. And the leftovers are a lot more tasty if you have some left in the fridge. And by feeding on him, we will become more like him, more like God. That's pretty incredible to think about. It is indeed an amazing gift. And that brings me to Christmas. Christmas is, in fact, coming soon, in just a few short weeks, in fact. Most of our friends and work colleagues will be having a lot of Christmas, excuse me, holiday parties over the next few weeks. We as Christians are called instead to wait in quiet anticipation for the birth of Christ. Advent starts next Sunday and is typically a fasting season. The norms of our Western Rite Vicariate and the Antiochian Orthodox Church prescribe that we eat only one full meal a day and, if necessary, one small meal, about a quarter of a normal meal, and none of this containing meat. That's red meat or poultry on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays throughout the season of Advent and on the Saturday before the fourth Sunday of Advent, which this year coincides um, with the, the day before um, Christmas Eve. Fish and, uh, well, the, what I'm trying to say is that the fourth Sunday of Advent this year is in fact Christmas Eve, which is a little bit weird. But it happens sometimes, like this year. Fish and seafood are allowed, and if for any reason this is something you think you can't do, come talk to me. This isn't to kill people. This isn't to, like, you know, ruin your life. There are many legitimate reasons that people cannot follow the fast. But part of the point of the fast is being obedient to something. And so if you just make up your own mind what you're going to do, it's not really the point. So at least, hey, let's have a discussion. And so we can set something that you can, in fact, be obedient. And I do believe that it's easy to deceive oneself into believing that you can't do it all with some accommodations. And that if you do do something rather than nothing, you'll be able to accomplish something good for your soul. And of course, fasting isn't just about food. And even the food restrictions aren't really about food. The limitations on food are to keep us mindful of God, train our wills, and remind us that food is one of many God's blessings to us. Fasting gives us the reminder of those things. And when we have it straight, we'll want to talk to God and thank God, pray, that is, We'll want to love our neighbors like God does, almsgiving. Doing that is being the face of God, the hands and feet of Jesus to the world. And when someone asks, you know, God, where are you? When someone says, I don't want to believe in God, but I, I want to believe in God, but I don't see him anywhere in this messed up world. Why wasn't God there when such and such happened? You should be able to say, he's right here. Don't you see him? In fact, we should be able to say when you see us that you see God, not smugly, not with pride, because of course it wouldn't be true, but with humility and sincerity. For someone to be an agnostic or an atheist means they've never seen a saint. Because when you see a saint, you see God. We're all called to be saints. So when we ask why so many in our world are so far from God, so far that they don't even believe in God in many cases, we should ask ourselves how our theosis is going. What are we doing to be more like God to those around us? So when we leave here, let's remember the feasting of the past week, give thanks to God for everything he's given us, and turn our minds to the pre-Christmas fast so that we can think more and more about whether we are saints and what we need to get there.
As Christians, it isn't just these folks and the icons around our walls that are saints. It's supposed to be you and me. So do we just talk the talk or are we really holy? Do we just say thank you, put our gifts in the drawer? Or do we truly bring God to a fallen world? And I get it. If you aren't feeling particularly holy and you're not sure where to start, again, just start with remembering all you have to be thankful for. Saying thank you is the beginning. And then you begin to go out there and show off the most awesome present you'll ever receive. God's very life and love. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.